Hello, this is Jada and Emlyn with another episode of Stories Behind the Scrubs. On this podcast, we interview medical professionals in order to get a better idea of what it is they do and why they do it. We also listen as they tell us their story recounting how they chose to go into medicine. On today's episode of Stories Behind the Scrubs, we're going to be talking to pediatric oncologist Dr. Monica Gramaches. When my little brother Brian was four, he was diagnosed with leukemia and Dr. Gramaches was one of the many people who worked closely with us throughout his four years of treatment. Thanks to his doctors, nurses, and everyone else who worked with us, Brian is now cancer-free and in remission. Hi. Hi. Hello. How are you guys? Good. How are you? I'm good. It's good to see you. Jada, I totally remember you. Yeah. (laughs) You still play, is it the cello? Yes, I do. Actually, we both play the cello. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so um, we're really excited to do this one with you. You're one of the doctors that I was really looking forward to um, because after Brian went through all of his cancer treatment, like you were the person, you were probably the first doctor that I really looked up to. Um, So we're really excited to do this one. Okay, well, great. Well, I'm excited too. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, so um, to start off, uh, we just kind of want to ask, where did you go to high school and what was your high school experience like for you? Okay. Well, I'm from Houston, so I actually um, was born in Houston, raised here, and then kind of went away from my training and came back. So I did my, um, I went to high school in Houston. Um, I went to St. John's, it's a private school, um, and I was there from sixth grade all the way through graduation. So um, it's a private school, a little bit intense academically, works really hard. I don't know. I mean, I, I wasn't really that involved in like sports and other things. I was kind of more of like a study nerd kind of person and um, was involved in some arts things, but, um, but mostly was just kind of working hard and reading and trying to place out of as many college courses as I could. So, so that was what my high school was like, but I still have some great friends from my high school still living in Houston that I've stayed in touch with and then have just kind of become like lifelong friends. So um, it was a really great experience. And outside of your studying, uh, what were some of your interests while you were in high school? <laughs> um, so I um, I mean, honestly, my family is really close. So I think I would say I spent a lot of time um, with my family and my my grandparents um, was very close with my grandparents, my mom's parents who lived in Houston too. So um, a lot of the times, like the social times that I spent outside of school, um, we're hanging out with um, my grandparents. In our senior year, we used to, we were allowed to leave campus for lunch. So I'd um, meet my granddad at the country club um, on Fridays and we would have lunch together. And on Friday nights, we would all have dinner together as a family with my aunt and uncle and my parents and my brother and my grandparents. We would go there every single Friday um, and have um, dinner together. So a lot of it was that. Um, I spent, um, I did my extracurricular activities were things like I did a yearbook for a really long time. Um, I was really interested in volunteering, um, was very into the environment. I still am, um, but I volunteered at the Arboretum, at the Houston Arboretum, um, and like, you know, mulching trails and things like that, um, and just hanging out with friends. I mean, I, um, I, 
I did do, I had some work experiences during high school, mostly over the summer, but I didn't work during the school year. And those were just things to kind of get experience and kind of basic entry level kind of like administrative roles um, just to kind of make some money and like be able to have some spending money for and like car money and things like that, um, which I don't know if you guys do that too, but, um, but yeah, that was mostly what I did. I think I, I would just say that now I am struck with how um, motivated and how involved high school students are these days. Like I feel like when I was in high school, um, I don't know, you were like in sports or you did some other things, but now the high schoolers that I see, because sometimes people come to me because they're interested in a career in medicine, they want to know like what kind of experiences um, they should be having and just the number of high school students who want to like spend time in the lab or do a research project or like, you know, shadow doctors in the hospital. I just never, I honestly never did any of that stuff. Um, I was not thinking about what I wanted to be when I, I mean, I kind of was thinking about medicine very abstractly, but never to the point where I actually like sought out um, volunteer work um, as a like in medicine as a high schooler. That kind of came later when I was in medical school and kind of like um, when I was further along, like already kind of in the track, but um, not at that young age. So I'm super impressed by you guys having this podcast. It is just, it's so cool that you're doing this. And I'd love to hear more about just the podcast in general. You know, we don't have to do it now, but some other time I want to know like who you're interviewing and how you decided to do that and how long you guys have been doing it because it's a really cool project and I'm excited to listen to the podcast. Yeah, we can definitely attest to high school as being really competitive. Um, you had said that the private school you went to that uh, there was a lot of academic competition. Uh, what was that sort of framed like and uh, would you say there was a sense of community or was it pretty cutthroat? Um. I wouldn't say it was cutthroat, um, but the high school that I attended um, is very um, has a very good reputation as um, as a wonderful like um, college prep kind of high school. Um, the, there's a lot of intensity in the academics. The workload was really high. The expectations um, were um, pretty huge, and for me, I think it really. Um, I, I look back on those years and I think it prepared me um, very well, particularly for my writing skills, because that's one thing I think that my high school excelled at was preparing me for critical thinking and for writing um, and for analyzing um, literature, like reading something and being able to analyze it and then um, write about it critically was uh, one skill that I feel like I really honed in, in high school that helped um, kind of helped me a lot in my college years. And even now, just um, the, the grammar um, lessons that I learned then, it's writing skills are, are, I think, really important. And in my career now, it's a lot of what I do. I write a ton of grants um, and I read a ton of grants um, and um, I write a lot of papers and I read a lot of papers and those skills kind of all um, were formed early in my high school years. Um, I would say we had a, I had a group of really great friends and we were all kind of, we studied together. We were very friendly. Um, I don't remember or feel like um, significant competition with those people, like wanting to beat them out at, in, but in grades and things like that, because I don't think, um, 
I don't know, the school didn't really um, pit us against each other in that way, in that way. Um, but it was definitely, um, it was more like self-imposed competitiveness. Like you wanted to do well because everyone around you was so smart and so high achieving that you wanted to work hard to keep up with those people. Um, I definitely wasn't like the smartest kid in the class, but I worked really hard. Um, and I took some classes that kind of, you know, that kind of changed my life. I mean, the the biology course that I took, I had this amazing um, biology AP teacher. I had her twice, um, one for bio one and one for bio two as a senior. And she was a large reason why I decided to go into medicine because um, she was just such an amazing teacher and had this enthusiasm and love of teaching and love of science that I really got excited about. And I think that's one way I would say I, I owe a lot to my high school because I think the teachers were outstanding and loved teaching. And that instilled in me a love of learning because my teachers were such fabulous. Um, they were just really good um, teachers and um, kind of helped us think about how much fun it is to learn about, I mean, the subjects they taught, everything I took, um, I just like the reading that I did and, um, and I was in languages, so I did Spanish courses, um, um, the literature, the history, it was all just, the teachers were just fabulous. So I think that made a big difference for me. Well, it seems like your high school was very good academically, um, but it didn't seem like you had a ton of interest in medicine in high school. So what was your plan for the future? Yeah, so I mean, I loved science because of my science teacher, like I said, so um, she really gave me and I was thinking I would want to do something in biology and science, but I really didn't know. Um, when I was looking at colleges, I kind of looked all over. I was one of those people who wanted to go out of state. Um, not everyone does. Like some people want to stay close to home. I kind of wanted to leave and see something else because I lived in Texas all my life. Um, and I, I just, you know, I'd always wanted to travel and see new things. So I looked at colleges mostly in like the um, like the East Coast side and like um, kind of um, South and East Coast, I guess. And I ended up um, going to William & Mary, which is actually a public school, um, but it's a very small school, or at least it was at the time. I don't know if it's a little bit bigger now, but it's in Williamsburg, Virginia. And um, it's a liberal arts school, but it also has a strong um, science program. And when I was there, um, I really, um, I was really conflicted um, between um, a career in art and art history and in biology. And I actually double majored in those two, um, those two subjects because I loved the science and I always had, um, but I'd also always loved art and drawing. And I think growing up, I had a passion for art and had always gone to, had out, I'd always done art classes and I was always like kind of sketching and drawing on the side and, and had some art experiences in high school that I, um, that I really loved. So what I thought I might want to do um, after college was um, a career in art therapy. And I don't know if you guys know what that is, but um, it's basically, um, and actually, Jada, you probably do because there are art therapists that work with Brian, um, but they're, um, they're people, professionals who work with um, people. It can be elderly people. It can be um, admitted people admitted to the hospital. It can be children. And um, as a part of therapy, they do art with those people. So they're trying to help, um, help patients um, be able to kind of 
talk about and manage and cope with their illness or their conditions through art. And there's a training program for that. So um, you actually do um, training and do an internship in art therapy. And I was thinking in my head with my passion for art and, um, and art history and my passion for, for science and medicine, that maybe that would be the perfect um, combination of those two loves and that I would be an art therapist. Um, and I actually did a year, um, I went to Chicago for a year after college and tried out, um, like I kind of worked as an intern for an art therapist in an assisted living facility um, and really loved it, but found that it wasn't quite as fulfilling as I wanted it to be. I just, I think my intellectual curiosity about the medicine side was too strong and I wasn't getting that. I was part of the medical team, but not really. And I was getting to work with patients, which I actually ended up really loving, but I had so many questions about like the underlying pathophysiology, what was happening and why they were the way they were and what was kind of, um, what were the like undercurrents of their disease and illness and all those questions weren't, I wasn't able to answer as an art therapy intern. So um, I felt like I needed more education and, um, and instruction in that area. And that's kind of when I was like, okay, I think I need to go to medical school. So I thought that was a possibility in college. So I'd taken most of my pre-med courses. I had a few I had to still take. And then when I fulfilled all the requirements, I applied to medical school. So, and the rest is history, but I still love art, but mostly now I just do art projects with my kids. <laughs> I don't have an art career. That's really interesting. Uh, what would you say was the biggest transition between going to high school in Texas and going to college on the East Coast? Um, well, so I mentioned that I was really close with my family. So I didn't know anybody in Virginia. Um, I didn't have any family anywhere nearby. Um, so mostly it was just the shock of suddenly being alone somewhere. I and mean, I'd gone to like camp and I'd like traveled in high school um, on student you know, trips and had gone to like Spain for a summer and things like that. But this was the first time when I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm kind of an adult and I'm alone and I'm responsible for, you know, making sure that I get what I need to eat and that like I can and all that, you know, and that I'm do doing all the things I need to do to maintain uh, my health. And I mean, it, it was the first time I'd ever really had that experience to that degree and not had like a safety net around. So I think that was the hardest part. I mean, I think in college, they do a really nice job of setting you up in a residence hall with other students and you're all kind of in the same boat together. And there are a lot of activities you all do together and get to know each other and you kind of develop a new support network. Um, but there's a huge variety in, in people and types of people as a freshman in college. Some people are very like homebodies and family oriented and feel very displaced in this new environment. And some people are just like super independent and just, you know, whatever, this is like totally fine. And there's just a huge divergence of interests and like in personalities. And I think for me, I'd come from a place where um, there was diversity, but everyone was very academically minded. And all my friends had been very focused on, you know, doing as best as you can in school and studying hard and like excelling and, and all those things. And then in college, there were people like that, but there were also people who were like, not at all like that and kind of trying to, to find a balance in this new environment of 
friends that I was meeting and people that I was um, living with and working with and, and figuring out how to really do what I needed to do, um, but also kind of develop a new social circle. And like, it, it took a little while, I think, for me to kind of find the balance that was right for me. But the, the friends that I was around were, were very different. Um, and it ended up, I think it ended up being a good thing and kind of in broadening my horizons more and helping me, you know, um, understand different kinds of people and how they operated. I mean, I, it was great um, in the end, but it was an adjustment, just that change. And then just the level. I mean, I think my high school, the classes that I had, a lot of them were college level. So the work wasn't um, wasn't as much of a transition, like the, the, the type of classes I was taking and the academic intensity. I could handle that. I felt like that was pretty, but it was, it was just different in the structure, like a lot of big lecture classes that I wasn't used to because I had always had small classes of like 18 students. I'd never been in a big lecture hall before. And that was very different um, and um, just um, some differences in those structure and just the largeness of the campus and navigating when, you know, just kind of living in a new place. It was my first experience learning a new city and living in a new place. So um, a lot of adjustment, um, but it ended up being a great time. And um, I made, again, some lifelong friends in, in college um, and took some great classes that prepared me for medical school. So um, I went to college in a small town. So that was kind of nice. I think if I was in a really big like metropolitan city, it would have been even more overwhelming, but it was a really small little kind of, um, quaint little town. It's where Colonial Williamsburg is. So there's, you know, there's some touristy stuff, but it's not a very overwhelming city. It's pretty easy to get to know. There were only like three restaurants. And like, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like there was a lot, um, a lot to do or learn. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it was overall, it was really good. Yeah, I can imagine the transition um, from being surrounded to fam by family and all like your friends in high school is very different going into college with all these new people and less family around. Um, but aside from the differences, what would you say was similar to high school or what skills did you have in high school that you carried over to college that really helped you be successful? Yeah, so I think the writing, which I mentioned before, is one big thing. Um, I knew how to write a paper. I knew how to structure um, a critical review. Um, I knew, you know, how to write a nice introduction. I knew um, kind of, you know, how to formulate a paragraph with an intro sentence and a conclusion sentence. I knew how to pick out from what I was reading um, what were the important points and be able to to write about that. So um, when I was like a lot of my art history courses had some very like writing intensive. Um, um, elements. I had to write, you know, like 20, 30 page papers. And I think I would have been completely overwhelmed by that if I hadn't had the foundation in writing that I'd had. Um, so that was a huge help um, for sure. Um, um, aside from that, I mean, I never took math in college because I placed out of it. So I never had to, I took like calculus BC in high school and never had to take a math course. So that I never, I mean, I've never used calculus since and the last time I took math was in high school. So um so that was that. Um, so it was really mostly the the writing and um and then just the I think one of the key things was just um my passion for science and love of biology and um and I think that really took me a long way um, because 
I knew to seek out um, classes that um, that were in the and I just kind of I had a strong foundation in the sciences because I'd taken so much chem and physics and biology so that helped prepare me well for the chemistry and the physics and bio that I took in college which were um, some of them were pretty difficult courses but I feel like I had a strong foundation in those um, so that helped me too. Um, but largely, I think what I would say most helped, aside from the writing, is that having good study habits. Like, I feel like I, I learned that in high school because I had to, but I also was surrounded by people who studied. <laughs> um, and that helped me because I had good habits already. Like, I, I, you know, I mean, it sounds silly, but like I knew that for me to have, be, a, I knew what my effective studying environment was. I knew that I couldn't have loud music playing. I knew that I had to be at a desk. I knew that I had to have snacks. Um, I knew, like I knew how to study for hours and I, I could do it because I'd done it in high school. So I was um, kind of prepared for that. But I think a lot of people who go to college who don't have that kind of training in high school or those habits have a hard time figuring out when they're completely on their own and they don't have a parent like covering over them like do you have you done this have you done this um that you know it's harder for them to adjust to to the study habits um but i feel like that's something that high school really gave me so um i was prepared for that so you had said that it took you a year in chicago to really decide that you wanted to go to medical school uh, what was your MCAT experience and how did you prepare for it? Oh, the MCAT test? Oh my God, you're asking me questions from like 25 years ago. Um, I'm gonna try to remember for you. So, and I don't know how much of this is the same now as it was then, um, but when, for me, when I was applying for medical school, you had to apply like a year in advance of when you were planning to go. I mean, it was pretty far. So I knew pretty early in Chicago that I, that I wasn't going to be an art therapist. But by the time that I, I wasn't, I didn't make the decision early enough to apply for medical school that year, right? So um, so I, I was in Chicago full like, I guess I was, I was there for nine months and then I had like three months in Houston waiting for um, medical school to start after I got in. Um, so I was studying, I did not take an MCAT course. Um, I studied on my own and I bought like review books and I just studied them. Um, I mean, when I was in Chicago, I had my internship and then I also had to work part-time because I had to like make money and my internship wasn't paid. Um, so I studied like in my spare time um, after work and on the weekends and I reviewed, um, I just studied review books. Um, I don't even remember how I did on my MCATs. I don't think I did amazing, but I think I did good enough. <laughs> and I only say that because I remember like in Texas, we're super lucky because there are so many medical schools. I don't know if you guys realize or if you're thinking about going to um, medical school, um, but in Texas, we have more medical schools here. I mean, maybe, I don't know about California, but it is crazy how many opportunities for schools there are. And um, some states don't even have one medical school. So if you're a student in Texas, granted we have a big population, but there's a lot of places to choose from and it's not quite as competitive as it could be because of there are so many schools. And um, so I, and the Texas, the UT system is like one application, which is also really nice because you don't have to apply to each of the, I think when I was applying, there were like six schools. I don't know how many there are now, 
like eight, nine, something like that, crazy. Um, but I did not, I applied to the UT schools and from those you can only get into one. So you like craft your choices. And then um, I applied to Baylor College of Medicine and I did not get into Baylor College of Medicine. And I remember this very distinctly because um, for the UT schools, I think I got into like AM and I had prepped UT Houston first. And that's the one I ended up going to, which is a great school. But at Baylor, I actually went to my interview and they said that my MCAT scores were good, but they could be better. And they recommended that I take them one more time to see if I could um, improve my score. And I decided not to. So I was just like, I'm not taking those things again. <laughs> and um, I didn't do it. And I'm pretty sure that shot me in the foot because I think they were looking to see like what my follow-up scores were. And um, and I never took them again because I just, it was such a like, you know, difficult experience. <laughs> I just decided I didn't want to do it anymore. And I don't know what would have happened if I would have taken them again and done better. Maybe I would have gotten in, who knows. Um, but I never took them again. And I kind of knew I was kind of blowing it with Baylor by doing that. But I'd already decided that I was very happy with my, you know, other choices. So I just decided to just do that. So I um, ended up going to UT Houston, which is a great school. And it's also in Houston. And I was near my family and um, I kind of knew that was that was going to work out, so um, so it all kind of ended up being fine. Um, but that was I, I don't remember what my MCAT scores were. I have no recollection of it at all. It's like blocked from my memory. <laughs> my memory. Yeah. So you ended up um, going to UT Houston. Yeah. Uh, so what would you say, having been through um, all four years of medical school? Um, the most important thing for future med school students to look for when choosing their schools is? Um, that's a great question. So, I, well, let me just talk. So medical school, a lot of medical school is um, your first year um, or two years is mostly didactic. And then you do um, clinical rotations in your third and fourth year. And um, so, I mean, it's not, it, it's a lot of work, right? So especially the didactic part, because, um, and I won't even talk about medical school during a pandemic, because that's a whole different ball of wax. Um, but, but the didactic part, um, whether you're in person or you're watching the courses on Zoom, there's a lot of studying, there's a lot of memorization, um, and you do have these step exams that you have to pass um, to kind of be competitive for residency. And some of it depends on what kind of residency you want to do, like what kind of doctor you want to be. Um, but you don't really usually know that going in your first year. So you you want to, stu to study hard to do the best you can in your courses and, and excel at your steps. Because if you do decide you want to do like dermatology or interventional radiology, which are like really competitive residencies, you want to have the scores and grades to be able to get into those programs, right? So, um, so I'd say, um, I'd say it can be um, intense, uh, especially like in the first couple of years. Um, I would look for, and I'm so far from medical school, you guys, that, I mean, I think I don't, I don't know a lot about how medical schools are structured these days, honestly. Um, but one thing that, that I've noticed that they have now that I didn't have, at least UT and Baylor do, 
is early clinical experiences. Because when I was in medical school, I had two years of being in lectures um, and just, you know, just pure didactics. And it was really hard to remember for me why I decided to go into medicine because it was so grueling and the hours were so long and there was so much memorization and I was never seeing patients and I wasn't seeing like shadowing doctors or anything. I was just like in lectures and lab practicals and just, you know, trying to assimilate this huge amount of information. Um, and, and it was, I think it was hard for me to, to remember like the reasons why I was doing medicine because I wasn't getting to experience the joys of actual like patient care and interaction. So that for me was hard as a medical student, but now at least UT now and Baylor now um, do these um, early integration of patient care where they set you up and partner you with the physician that you shadow even beginning in your first year and you're with them in their clinics and when they see patients and that experience I think is huge because it helps you remember why you're doing what you're doing. And the other thing um, that both Baylor and UT do, and I can only speak to those two because they're the ones that I see all the time, um, is that they offer courses that um, try to incorporate early um, humanism in medicine and and why and how to how to cope with grief and loss and how to um, and how to find the the kind of the awe in medicine and there's a course that I actually help facilitate called Healer's Art, which is a course that was developed in San Francisco by a woman by the name of Naomi Remen. Um, and it's taught in medical schools all over the country. And it's taught in the first year of medical school and it brings students here, it brings students from UT and Baylor together in large and small groups and together you and the facilitator. So it's like groups of like six students and like one facilitator. And you talk about um, all the parts, all the reasons why you went into medicine and how we all bring our life experiences. And even if we're students in training and we're like, you know, 24 years old, we've all experienced um, grief and loss and major issues in our lives that have, that have given us experiences that can be used to help support and empathize with our patients. So, um, we all bring something to the table and we all have something to learn and we all have something to teach. And so I think with that course, and then kind of we go through like a couple of sessions on like how to cope with grief and loss in medicine um, when a patient dies or when a patient is sick. Um, and then we talk about the amazing experiences in medicine and kind of the, the life transforming parts about medicine and why we love and are passionate about medicine in our career. Students really love that course. And I think a lot of it is because they're so wrapped up in the book learning and the didactics that they need that reminder of what's so special about a career in medicine. And I think um, it just gives them a lot of, of energy and excitement for their career and their education that they carry forward with them through the rest of their school um, and to the war, you know, the clinic rotations when they do those. So I've been a part of that course for gosh, like five or six or even seven years. I don't even remember. Um, I do it every year um, with about, I don't know, 20 other faculty facilitators, but 
the facilitators, the faculty love it just as much as the students do, because it kind of reminds me too, like when I'm all wrapped up in grant writing or um, a patient who's not doing well, um, that course is kind of like, it grounds me and helps me remember why I chose to do this and what it was like that, you know, 20 odd years ago when I was trying to decide what to do with my life um, to be like early in my medical training and to feel a little bit lost and not really, and, and need to, a reminder for, for why I chose this path. So, um, so I don't know, I think if a program like that is available at the school um, and it doesn't have to be healer's art, but it can be like a, any kind of humanism and medicine and just kind of a, not a didactic course where you're learning like microbiology or neuroanatomy, but more like the, the, the psychosocial side, like how do you, um, how do you be compassionate? How do you be a good listener? How do you um, be there for your patients? Not, and how do you make five minutes feel like 30 minutes when you're talking to a patient family? Like what are the things that you do to show that, to show them that you really care? The, those kinds of courses I feel like are really important to making good doctors. Um, and it's not just about like how smart you are, but it's about how good you are at interacting with people and how the, your ability to sense cues and the way patients look or talk or, or react and respond to those cues and be um, kind of empathetic to their situations. So, um, so that I think is really important when you're looking at medical schools to make sure that that kind of foundation of learning is present. And I think a lot of medical schools have those now. It didn't exist when I was, when I was in medical school. It was not a thing. <laughs> I think it's really interesting how they are trying to incorporate more of a balance. I think it's a good reminder to everyone who is diving head on into a certain field or a career path to kind of take a step back and look at it um, at a wider perspective. Uh, so we know medical school is often a really stressful experience, or it certainly can be with all the learning that needs to be accomplished. Um, how did you manage your stress and your time? Yeah, probably not super well. <laughs> um, I had um, um, I had friends that I studied with, um, again, like, study habits, building those habits early, super important, um, even in high school. Um, but I think, again, like you guys now developing good habits early, knowing what works for you and what your environment is that you that you learn best in. Do you need like some quiet music playing? Do you need white noise? Do you need silence? Um, do you need, you know, are you a note card learner or do you write everything down? I mean, I used to be a person and I still am where if I write it, down for myself, even if it's just like writing the same thing I'm reading, for some reason, writing it down helps it stick in my head better than just reading alone. Um, and just kind of what your best ways of learning and memorizing are, um, everyone learns differently. So figuring that out early is really important um, and will help establish habits that you'll take with you throughout all your education. Um, so I think, you know, in medical school, probably didn't um, give myself enough downtime as I should have. I mean, now as like a 45 year old woman, like I know that exercising for me goes a long way. And when I work out and exercise, it revitalizes me, it gives me more energy, my mood is improved. Like it just helps in so many ways. It clarifies my my head. Like I just I think more clearly. 
um, and I'm much more effective. And I did not really develop that habit until, I don't know, maybe I had kids. So like 10 years ago, maybe. Um, but if I were more physically active in medical school and college, I probably, it, it would have really helped me. And I just didn't figure that out until much later in my life. So I don't know. Um, I think learning those things about you that are, that are, um, that, that kind of help like the healthy, positive behaviors as, as early as you can figuring out those things, um, is really helpful. I, I don't think I was quite as active in medical school as I should have been. Um, I think I was pretty lazy and mostly just like studied and like <laughs> laid around and, and, um, and like ate food that wasn't very good for me. So, um, so I look back at that time and I'm like, Oh, it was really not very healthy then. Um, but it all, it all worked out. I mean, honestly, and, and totally, frankly, it's important to get into medical school. Um, I don't think it matters what medical school you go to. Um, and, what really matters, I think, more is your residency and your fellowship and where you end up going. And I guess, um, you know, if you if you want to do really competitive residency, then you know you have to do really well in medical school. Um, but it doesn't necessarily matter which medical school you go to, because honestly, just getting into medical school is hard because it's just a competitive process. Um, don't worry about too much where you're going as long as they have what you need um, and, you know, the, the support that I was talking about. Um, and then focused your energy on picking the right residency for you. So, um, you know, uh, going through your steps, making the grades you need to get to get into a good residency program. Because I think what really made me into the pediatrician and pediatric oncologist that I am today was my residency and my fellowship, much more so than anything that happened in medical school um, or even college. Like um, those, what, Everything I use every day is training that I received in residency and fellowship. I don't remember the biochemistry stuff that I learned in college. I don't remember like um, the, you know, the, all the anatomy that I learned in medical school as much as it's just, it's not something I use every day, but the residency and fellowship stuff is for sure. Yeah. So you mentioned how important your residency was. Um, you ended up doing a pediatric residency. What helped you decide that you wanted to go into pediatrics? Oh, so that was actually a tough decision. So um, I, medical school, like when you do your clinical rotations in your third year, you start to kind of cross things out and realize things that you don't want to do. Like I was, I realized pretty quickly, like I do not want to do um, like obstetrics, gynecology, not for me. Um, and I was not interested in psychology at all, like was not for me. I really liked pediatrics. I really liked internal medicine. And I honestly really like surgery. Um, and when I was thinking about what I wanted to do, I decided not to do surgery because of the, how long the training was. And because I really liked um, taking care of people for long periods of time, like, like getting to know them um, over time. And I felt like surgery wouldn't offer that same gratification because you're, you're treating a patient, you're doing your surgery, and then you may see them for a follow-up visit, but you don't actually like get to know them or their family um, very well, usually. And um, so I was, honestly, I interviewed for both MedPeds and Peds residency, because I was, I was thinking for a while I wanted to do internal medicine pediatrics. Um, and in the end, um, 
I decided, you know, what I, what I liked, I really liked families and working with kids and families. Um, and I probably could have gone into internal medicine and been very happy and internal medicine, there are fewer residency programs or there were. Um, so it was just a little bit harder to find a good fit, but, um, but I just, um, I ended up selecting pediatrics just because I knew that a component would need to be, um, taking care of kids. And in medical school, I'd done a lot of volunteer work at MD Anderson, working with um, the Children's Art Project and uh, in pediatric cancer patients and just really loved it. Um, so I kind of um, already decided in my head, pediatrics and maybe pediatric oncology, even when I went to residency. So I was thinking kind of ahead in that way. Um, and that just kind of solidified when I was in residency. I re just really enjoyed that particular specialty. And a lot of it was for those same reasons. I wanted to take care of people. Like I wanted to have that continuity. I wanted to get to know a family and a child and watch him or her grow up and over years. And I wanted like to take care of a chronic problem that I would um, be able to follow. Cause you know, even primary care would have that if I'd done just to become a pediatrician. Um, and that's, I mean, I would, you know, that's what I would love about pediatrics in general is that getting to know a family over time and becoming like part of, you know, their everyday lives. Um, for me, the specialty component was just an area where I had particular like interest, like intellectual curiosity and where I really felt like there was a lot in the disease that needed to be learned. And there was a lot of potential things to do in that field. So that's kind of what pushed me towards the, the pediatric oncology side. When we interview doctors, I would say the largest point of deviation is how they chose their, uh, their specialty residency, because we've heard, we've heard a different perspective every time. Like you had said that you wanted to watch how, like watch the kids grow up and really get to connect with your patients. It's been so interesting to hear how each doctor responds differently and they all take a much different approach to how they chose their field. Well, I would say um, too, with pediatrics and the reason why I like it is because when you're recommending a treatment for a child, um, most parents are very invested in the health of their child. And that child does not have like chronic bad behaviors that you need. I mean, for the, you know, like they're not, um, they don't smoke. They don't, they don't like drink a lot. They don't like lay around and, you know, not do anything. They're pretty, you know, kids are pretty active. They don't have a lot of underlying chronic problems and parents are very invested in the health of their child. So if you recommend a treatment, most parents are like, okay, like, yes, I will give antibiotics to my child or yes, I will do that treatment that you recommend because they want their children to be healthy. But adults, you have problems where um, a lot of parents, it's hard to change people's behaviors, right? So with adults, I think what a lot of, what doctors who treat adults struggle with is that you recommend a treatment or you recommend a behavioral modification and it's really hard for people to change. Like if they've been doing something for a long time, it's hard to quit smoking. It's hard to start exercising. It's hard to like change your, your daily habits. And a lot of adult patients you know, have a lot of underlying chronic conditions that are hard to modify and they may not, you know, they have priorities, they have work, so they can't make their appointments. They, you know, their schedules are difficult with children. 
I don't, it, that's one part about pediatrics that I like is that most, it, we don't often struggle with convincing people to, to fulfill our recommendations for treatment in pediatrics. But in adults, sometimes I think that can be one of the frustrations with the field is that parent pa- patients aren't compliant. Like they just, you know, whether or not they in the moment agree that the treatment is important, they kind of do what they want to do. And um, in pediatrics, you have a parent who's also your advocate and partner who works with you to help make sure that the child is doing what they need to do. Um, so for pediatric oncology, um, so when I knew I was, you know, when I was in residency and I knew I had an interest in pediatric oncology, I was specifically looking at specialty. Well, I knew I wanted to subspecialize. And I think that's the first thing that you figure out in your residency because there are two big avenues. One is primary care and one is a specialization. And in primary care, um, I mean, you guys know you have had pediatricians, I'm sure. Um, they are um, they are like a part of your family. You get to know them super well. They see you every year for your well child checks. And then when you're sick too. Um, and being a pediatrician, I think is hugely rewarding in so many ways because you get to watch kids grow up and it's just it's super cool and fun. Um, and I think and there are a lot of things about pediatrics that I really like, um, but, and things that I really enjoyed when I had my um, kind of my clinic in, in residency, because you have your clinic as a, as a resident where you take care of patients the three years that you're in residency. Um, but one things that I, that I wanted that a pediatric residency didn't offer um, was kind of the more um, academic environment. And the, I wanted to know a lot about something specific. Um, I think, in pediatrics, you have to be a really good generalist. You have to know a little bit about a lot of things. And, um, and sometimes you know a lot about, you know, general pediatric stuff that you see all the time. Um, but I was more like my brain worked better and I wanted to really do a deep dive into a specific system or area where I could become like the expert in that particular um, aspect of um, the way the body works. And um, on Oncology drew me in part because of the experience that I had at MD Anderson, where um, I'd volunteered to work with the pediatric cancer patients in the Toronto's Art Project. So I had been familiarized with those patients and their families and what they were going through. And I knew that was something I was interested in, but I was also looking at other um, subspecialties. I thought about infectious disease because um, we had a really wonderful um, infectious disease specialist in my residency who took care, who had an HIV clinic. And I thought that was super interesting because these were children who had um, a chronic disease. They had HIV um, and she was watching them grow up and managing all kinds of issues. And I really liked immunology and um, the the therapies that had were available then and now were really interesting and exciting so I thought about that as a career. Um, I thought about um, I thought about renal. I thought about different things. But what I realized was that um, in Hemonc, you even though I was mostly interested in in treating cancer, but the patients who have hematologic oncologic diagnoses often have diseases. Their their diseases often involve other systems. So you end up getting a little bit of infectious disease, a little bit of renal, a little bit of GI, a little, I mean, all those different subspecialties, these patients 
Um, because they have like this multi-systemic disease and they're immunosuppressed, they often have other um, problems that involve other organ systems. So it was a really interesting, um, the, the cancer was a really interesting um, disease to me just in general, um, because it's it, the story of childhood cancer is just so fascinating. Um, just the fact that it used to be um, a deadly disease where it was a universal um, poor outcome. And the fact that we've come from 10% survival to like over 90% survival in just, you know, six or seven decades is just remarkable. Um, so, I mean, that and alone was just super fascinating to me. But I also liked that um, the multidisciplinary aspect of it, that when I was taking care of a child who had cancer, I'd be working closely with um, the the pharmacy team and the renal team and the GI team and the ID team, and that there were a lot of consulting services that we often worked with because the patients had um, like multi-system involvement or they had um, other problems that required specialty care. So I've always really liked working um, in teams. I'm just more of a, like a team-based person. I feel like um, collaboration um, helps me be provide better care when I work with others. So that part of it was really attractive to me. And I like, and one of the things I like about oncology is just is working as part of a team um, and working with other specialists to um, manage patients. So I think that part of it was also very attractive. Um, I never, I mean, when you're a hematologist oncologist, you or pediatrics, you get trained in both hematology and oncology. I've always leaned more towards oncology um, ever since, you know, I did my fellowship. It's always been kind of my personal area of interest. And now I even mostly, I've even kind of specialized even more and I'm more um, focused on survivorship than, um, I mean, leukemia, um, but also survivorship now than I am with like solid tumors and other things. So I think as my career has developed, I've just become more, um, even more specialized. Yeah, well, um, I think the story of childhood leukemia is, of course, always very interesting. Um, and I'm always interested to read more and learn more about kind of the history and how we went from such a low number of survivors uh, to almost 90% of survivors for childhood cancers, especially for leukemia, which is what Brian had. And um, that whole story always means a lot to me and, of course, my family. Um, but kind of going into less of on the work side, but how do you manage uh, like a work balance and a family balance because you have kids and as females, I mean, if Emlyn and I start a family eventually, I mean, we want to think about kind of how to balance our work and family life. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's a constant challenge. I mean, I am um, getting, I think I'm getting better at it over time, honestly, Jada. I mean, I think um, it's hard. Um, before I had kids, it life was very different. <laughs> it's not um, shocking to hear that probably, but not just in terms of how like my day was made up because I remember before I had kids, um, my husband and I are both in academics. He's an architect. So he um, he's a professor of architecture at University of Houston, um, but he also is very like academically focused. So before we had kids, we would like, set aside our weekends and say, okay, we're going to work one day and we're going to, you know, play the other day. And we would spend like all day Saturday or all day Sunday, one of the two days 
working on papers we were writing or like grants we were writing or other things. And the other day we do something fun, like we go to the park or to a museum or something. And, um, and when we had kids that totally changed, right? Because then you have other responsibilities in the weekends and you don't have this, um, this, uh, you know, freedom to say, I'm going to, I'm going to work today because then your spouse has to take on all the childcare duties. Right. So, um, so I think it changed my productivity, but it kind of forced me to manage my productivity in a different way. And I think for me, um, what helped was being predominantly a researcher, because if I were um, predominantly a clinician, like seeing patients in a clinic, then I would have a schedule every day um, where, you know, patients are scheduled to see me or I have um, obligations in the hospital to take care of patients. Um, and my schedule will be much less flexible. But as a researcher, um, you have some flexibility in your schedule that lets you um, have some time during the day if you want to do, you know, if you need to take your child to the doctor, or if you need to go to see the school play, I can make up that time later. So I can, let's say my day-to-day as an academic researcher, I know I have to finish writing a paper. I have a grant that I'm working on. Um, I have some data that I need to analyze. Um, but my kid is in a play at school and it's at like noon. So being a researcher, I have the flexibility to leave my office during the day, go to the event and then come back. And knowing that that two hours that I lost, I can make up later um, after he or she goes to bed and I can finish doing writing that paper or analyzing those data. I can make up that time on the weekend during naps or, um, or you know, time I set aside now my kids are a little older, so it's a little easier because they have other interests. Like my son wants to spend two hours building a Lego. Okay, great. Like then I'll get to do some work. But um, but I think just finding and managing that time and being flexibility flexible about when you do the work you need to do um, for me has been really helpful. Um, and being a researcher has given me that flexibility that's let me kind of maintain some semblance of productivity even after I have kids. I think. The other factor I would think about is just psychologically, just in the field that I'm in, um, taking care of children with cancer, I think just I had to manage my own ability to cope with illness after I had children because before I had kids, I mean, while I, you know, certainly sympathized with what parents were going through and, you know, and tried very hard to, um, to help them walk that difficult path of a diagnosis and treatment for cancer. I think when I started, when I had children of my own, that became much harder because it's hard not to personalize those experiences and think about what they would mean if they happened to you, right? So um, so for that, for that, I think when, when I, after I had kids, um, I relied much more on my colleagues who also have school-aged children and kind of um, really, we, we developed a group of women who are all um, in, you know, doing balancing research and clinic careers. And we started meeting once a month and sharing with each other what our struggles have been and also our successes and just, you know, kind of relied on each other as a support network. And that really helped a lot just to kind of have someone else to talk to about those kinds of struggles and outcomes that weren't, you know, what we wanted with our patient care, but also with our research careers. And um, I think 
that really made a difference for me, having that network of support, especially after I had kids, because um, that's kind of when it became harder. And it was harder for me to share with my spouse because as an architect, he doesn't have that same perspective. So, you know, in what I was seeing day to day, um, I think it really takes someone who's also an oncologist treating children with cancer to really understand how hard it is sometimes to, to take care of kids who are sick when you have kids yourself and you know how precious life is and how much you cherish your children and you can, you have a much deeper understanding of what these parents must be going through, even if you haven't experienced it yourself. So um, I think that um, that part also changed a lot for me after I had kids. We're just going to wrap up the interview with one last question really briefly. What's a day in your life like? Just what, what's a normal day as a pediatric oncologist researcher like? Okay. So I have a pretty good routine. I get up in the morning around, usually around six. Um, I exercise um, and then I take my, so we have two kids. My son is nine and my daughter is I'm six and right now they go to different schools. So I'm responsible for taking my son to his school. So um, he and I leave the house around like 7.30ish um, and I drop him off at school and then I head into work and I get there usually around 8, 8.15. Um, and sometimes I have conference calls that start at eight. So I'm listening to my conference calls in the car. In the car. <laughs> and then um, once I get to work, I'm, most days, so I have like six weeks of the year that I'm in the hospital taking care of patients who are admitted to the hospital. And that's a totally different life. I mean, that's very, I'm basically, when I do that, I'm at work from eight to six, at, you know, at least, and I'm on my feet the whole day taking care of patients and managing sick patients. And so that's, you know, and that lasts for a week, weekends included um, at a time. Um, so that's a very different um, life. But normally when I'm not inpatient, I'm in my office and um, it's kind of what I described a little bit already. So uh, my lab is a translational research lab. So we study genetic and molecular predictors of late effects of cancer therapy. So we, um, we are interested in what are the genetic kind of biomarkers of toxicities with cancer treatment. Um, so a lot of what I do is look at data. So we have samples that we analyze for different biomarkers. And then I have um, spreadsheets and data that I look at and try to draw conclusions about if there are any associations between certain biomarkers and certain outcomes. Um, so um, it's a lot of data to look at. And then um, when I analyze those data, then I, then I write, up the paper, write up papers to describe those results. So a lot of what I do is I'm writing up my research. I'm also always trying to get funding for my lab. So um, I'm fortunate to have been pretty successful in getting um, funding for my lab from, um, from the federal government and also from private foundations. They're amazing foundations for childhood cancer that support researchers like me. So I've been very lucky to have been supported by them and also to get grants from um, the federal government. And so, um, but you know, those grants are only like 
two to five years long. So you're constantly having to apply for more funding to keep your lab running and to keep the research going. So I probably submit like, I don't know, 10 grants a year. And if I'm lucky, I get one, maybe two, if I'm really lucky. Um, so, and each grant is like 120 pages. So, so that's a lot of my time is writing grants. Um, and, you know, in a grant you're talking about um, you have to talk about what your budget's going to be, and you have to write your research plan, and you also have to write a bunch of stuff about how you're going to manage your data and who your collaborators are. So it's a pretty big project to write a grant, and that's how I spend a lot of my time is like writing and then revising grants when I get feedback and it's not funded. I have to resubmit it and like figure out how to make it better, and um, so that's a lot of my day too. Um, and then, um, so writing papers, writing grants, and then I also review grants for like um, study section, which is the National Institute of Health. They have these study sections of, um, of MDP, MDs and PhDs who review grants that have been submitted for funding. So I sit on a study section of like 40 people and we review um, about 100 grants every three months. And I usually review 10 of them. Um, so, um, but I also do it for like private foundations too as grant review. So I read other people's grants and um, and kind of give them feedback and score them. Um, and that's kind of another, um, that's a, in, uh, a large part of what I do. Usually I don't do all those things in a day. I kind of, I try to focus and set and block my time so that I have like, okay, for the next two hours, I'm gonna work on this paper and I wanna get it out by the end of the week. So I've gotta like finish this. And I try to prioritize what's most important um, and what I really need to get done so that I can, in the end of the day, um, get everything done that I need to get done. And there's always things on my to-do list that get pushed aside because I just don't have time. Um, but I try to really manage the things that are most critical and getting them done um, as best I can um, in a timely manner. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, I usually eat lunch at my desk and I usually leave my office around five or 530 because I have to pick up my son um, and then go home. I make dinner for the family. Um, we play a board game. Um, I read books to my kids and um, they go to bed by eight o'clock and I like crash. <laughs> and if you watch some TV and then go to bed, it's it's not a super the life of a working mom is not super exciting. Um, but my kids don't know this. We're getting a puppy this weekend. So that's going to change everything too, where I'll be in puppy city. Wow. That's exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experiences and stories with us. Uh, we really appreciated the time that you gave us and learning about how you became a pediatric oncologist and how you balance your time between family and work. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you guys. Know. All right. Bye. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Stories Behind the Scrubs. If you haven't already listened to the last episode with breast imaging radiologist Dr. Toma Omofoye, set aside some time to check that out. We'd also like to take this moment to thank Dr. Emil Seyreich, who recently passed away, and all the other doctors, scientists, and research for all the work and support they put into increasing the survival rate of childhood cancer.